Today we are looking at Esther uh, chapter 6, so go ahead and turn there. It's an amazing text in the midst of the book of Esther. If there uh, was any doubt about the comic nature of the book of Esther, it should be completely dispelled in this chapter. This chapter has been described as uh, the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. It's been described as one of the funniest anywhere in the Bible by different commentators. Uh, In chapter 6 here, for the first time, the scales tip in favor of Mordecai against Haman. I mentioned a few times uh, throughout this series about the celebration of Purim. So imagine as we're going through this, as, as those who celebrated Purim year after year and, and, and would celebrate part of that through seeing this visualized, being acted out, how the people would laugh and celebrate as the circumstances in this chapter unfold before them. So let's read the text and then we'll work through it. Go ahead and stand and follow along. Esther chapter 6, uh, we're going to read all the way through verses uh, 1 through 14. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigsana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought out, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will, you will no, not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your word, for the blessing that it is to us, not just now in this moment together as we look to it and, and study it, Lord, but each and every day in each moment of our lives, we are dependent on the truth of your word. So help us now to cling in a way that leads us from here, depending on you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to remind you as we are um, getting into this, there's, there's an overarching theme in the book of Esther of deliverance. God delivers His people. So often in spite of them, He delivers. He does it to the glory and honor of Himself as a display of His everlasting faithfulness. This section in the book of Esther initiates the deliverance of God's people in this story. We've seen how God has been working in the midst of random and even awful things, and now we will see how things turn purposefully toward deliverance. Verse 1 begins, on that night, the same night that Haman had built a stake or gallows to hang Mordecai on, and the same night of the day that Esther's first party had taken place, these things happened. You notice that in earlier sections of Esther, months and years and days passed between events, long periods of time, sometimes five years, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. And now we're, we're kind of at the heart of the story. We're in the midst of the main action of Esther, and so passing of time slows down. We kind of begin here getting every detail of the event being recalled for us. The king, it says that night, is unable to sleep. Now, we are not told why he is unable to sleep, only that sleep is kept from him. And so, he orders for someone to come and read to him from the book of memorable deeds. Now, we know this book. We're familiar with this book because it was mentioned in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. And you can imagine it must have been a long book. It is the chronicles of the things that took place in his reign and kingdom. And so a servant comes and begins to read. Maybe the king is thinking that hearing these things being read to him will do the trick, that it will make him doze off and go to sleep. We get to verse 2, and it says, it was found written how Mordecai had, had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So, it does not lead to slumber. Now, we remember this story, again, from chapter 2 of Esther. Mordecai saved the king's life. He had overheard of these two individuals who were plotting against the king to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai hears of the plan and reports it to Esther, who then told the king on behalf of Mordecai. That was recorded in Esther 2. But that section in Esther 2 ends 
And immediately after that, Haman is promoted and not Mordecai. And so now here in chapter 6, verse 2, this account is being read to the king and he remembers. Verse 3, the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? King Jungmin, who attended him, said nothing has been done for him. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for what he has done? Now, those two things, honor and recognition, were used to describe King Ahasuerus and his glory in in chapter 1, verse 4. These are the things that are important to the king, honor and recognition. And yet, he withheld them from the one who had saved his life. That doesn't mean he did it intentionally. And as we get further into the sermon, I would say he absolutely didn't do it intentionally. And we might wonder here, after all of these years, and there have been many years that have passed since chapter 2, did Mordecai even think about this anymore? Maybe he did. Maybe he did often. Maybe Mordecai is the type of person that is like for the rest of his life, he's just brewing over the fact that nothing, like not even a thing. I saved the life of the guy who kidnapped my cousin and did horrible things to so many people. I saved his life and nothing. Is this something he ever considered? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But one thing we know is God did. God remembered. God's timing here is perfect. Verses 4 and 5, and the king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. Just at the time when Ahasuerus is considering how to reward Mordecai with appropriate honor and recognition, Haman enters the court. Now, the king here is blissfully unaware of Haman's purpose and scheme, which is to ask the king to have Mordecai killed and hung on this enormous stake that he's just built in his backyard. And at the same time, Haman is unaware of King Ahasuerus' dilemma and what he's considering here with Mordecai. And the king doesn't seek advice from his servants who are there attending to him and reading to him, and they don't offer it. And, and, and rather, he calls on Haman for advice. He asks first, who is, who's there? And when told it's Haman, he calls him in. Basically, he wants his advice again. It says that Haman was in the outer court. He was apparently permitted to enter the outer court without an invitation of the king. But to enter the inner court, as we saw in chapter 4, you needed to be summoned. Now, we don't know how much time has passed here. It seems that Haman comes to the court that night not the following morning, which is what his wife had suggested for him to do in Esther chapter 5, verse 14. And so he's so eager to have Mordecai killed that he cannot wait until morning. 
He comes to obtain approval to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he has just built. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is glorious. Now, each of these men have something on their mind that they want to discuss immediately with the other one. But as is proper, the king speaks first, and it turns out that Haman will never get the chance to tell the king what he came to tell him. King Ahasuerus does not specify which man he wishes to honor, and Haman is so prideful that there is no room in his mind for anyone other than himself to be the object of the king's honor. He is narcissistic, and he is foolish. The most outstanding characteristic of Haman is that he is a glutton for honor. He and he alone must have the highest recognition and acclaim. And what does that do? It blinds him. It blinds him to everything else. It's verses 7 and 8, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the, one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, we have heard already Haman's inner thoughts. We know what Haman is thinking. And that Haman himself expects to receive the honor himself. That whatever he's going to suggest is going to take place and happen to him. And Haman's repetition of the king's words in verse 7 are certainly helping him um, savor the moment here. And so let's consider what Haman presents here, what he recommends to the king, thinking that he's going to receive it himself. The biblical model that we have for honor is the honor that Joseph received from Pharaoh. Do you remember that story of Joseph being elevated? In Genesis 41, verses 42 and 43, it says this, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now consider this. Haman has already received the signet ring from King Ahasuerus. And his other desires are more lavish than what Joseph received. Instead of fine linen robes, he wants the king's own robe. Instead of riding in a second chariot, Haman wants the king's own horse. Instead of the pronouncement, bow the knee, he wants a long and clear proclamation of his honor. He wants clothing actually worn 
by the king. Now, that is a very serious request. It is very much like him asking for the kingship. Adele Berlin writes this, a person's garment is considered a part of his body or a part of his being. Carrying one's clothes in mourning is permitted as a kind of substitute for injuring one's body, which is prohibited in Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. Cutting off half of a person's garment and shaving off half of his beard is a way of humiliating him without actually causing bodily harm. We see that in 2 Samuel 10, 4 and 5, when the army commanders spread their clothes on the stairs under Jehu, uh, they're signaling their submission and loyalty to him in 2 Kings 9.13. Aaron's priestly garments are donned by uh, Eleazar, his son, as he inherits the priestly office in Numbers 20, verses 25 through 28. Elijah's cloak symbolizes the prophetic office as well as the person of Elijah, and Elisha's receiving this cloak means that he has replaced Elijah. David's cutting off of a corner of Saul's cloak in 1 Samuel 24 registers in both men's minds as this symbolic taking of the kingship. So there's an extensive biblical tradition that provides a context for Haman's request for the king's robe. All of these details suggest that the kingship is what is on Haman's mind. Verse 9, again, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, the location of all of this activity is in the square of the city. Now, think about that in the context of who Haman is, what his desire that day is, and where he's purposefully having this done. Having it done in the square of the city suggests something. It, it seems that Haman, maybe as, maybe as one last hate-filled jab before he has him, killed, planned his finest moment to take place directly in front of Mordecai as he sat in front of the king's gate where he usually sat. And so verse 10 arrives, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. That's amazing. From honor to humiliation in a moment. Haman will have to honor the very person he seeks to disgrace. The king takes Haman's advice that Haman had thought was certainly for himself, could only be for himself. The king likes the advice so much that he wants it to be carried out to the letter by Haman. Haman's words come back to Haunt him literally. So, verse 11 so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Can you even imagine this? Imagine remembering the, the fury in Haman 
When we last encountered that Mordecai would not stand or tremble before him, would give him no honor, and the fury inside of Haman over that. And it's from there that he goes home and tells his friends and his wife, and they come up with this, this idea, this plan to have this, have this stake, have this gallows built, and go to the king in the morning and, and have him uh, give you permission to kill Mordecai and hang him on these tall gallows for everyone to see. Now, Haman personally carries out all of these actions to give great honor to Mordecai. The last time that Mordecai was in the city square that we see in the text, he was dressed in mourning garb, sackcloth and ashes, crying out for his people. What a reversal. Verse 11 here in the context of chapter 6, is a picture of what we know to be true from the Scriptures. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman is literally walking in that truth. And try to picture here the, the crew, the people at the king's gate what were they thinking as they saw and heard Haman declare the king's delight in honoring Mordecai? It is an amazing transformation, an amazing reversal. Instead of sackcloth, Mordecai is wearing the king's royal robes. Instead of crying through the city, Mordecai was led through the city with Haman crying out for everyone to give him honor. In verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Now, the text is silent uh, about Mordecai's reaction. We don't really know what his thoughts are about this. Uh, we don't know how he responded to the honor. He simply returns to his usual station at the king's gate. And likely, however sweet the taste of this was with Haman his enemy leading him through the streets. It, certainly, it is bittersweet because of the uh, edict that is still out there to kill all of the Jews in a certain amount of time. Haman, however, we do know, is ashamed and dejected. He is mourning his lost honor. Again, this is a picture of reversal here between Mordecai and Haman. Just as Mordecai has gone from mourning to splendor, Haman now has gone from splendor to mourning. It says in verse 13, Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Can you imagine what that was? You probably can. I mean, some of you maybe in your lives have come from circumstances where you come in the midst of people you love or trust or whatever it is, and, and you just pour out everything. Most likely from a biased perspective, and certainly that's what Haman is doing here. He's just telling them everything that happened. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, 
you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Notice Haman's friends are now referred to as um, his um, advisors. We don't know how Haman processed the full meaning of all this, but here his advisors, they no longer offer friendly words of support. They isolate him as the enemy of Mordecai and suggest that his ruin is already in progress and there is nothing he can do about it. Haman's coming downfall is already foreseen by his friends and his wife, and the emphasis is on Mordecai being Jewish, which is not good news for Haman, but is a ray of hope in the story that the Jews will prevail. Verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. While they were still talking, so Haman doesn't have a opportunity to think through the things that have just been said to him, the full meaning of their words. He had no time to ponder because he's immediately whisked off to the banquet with the king and Esther that he had so looked forward to, that he had literally boasted the morning prior to this about to his friends and his wife. And so we get to the part of this story where we see that Haman now has no control over the circumstances. He's summoned by the eunuchs in just the same way as Vashti was before she disappeared from the royal court. This whole section here of Esther in chapter 6 is a great reversal. And so what can we learn about God from this chapter? What do we learn about our God from chapter 6 of Esther. First is this, let's again consider the beauty of God's providence. Think through this chapter here. In verse 1, what a coincidence that the king cannot sleep. In verse 2, what a coincidence that in this great book of chronicles of things that have happened, that the servant happens to read the part of the Chronicles where Mordecai saved the king's life. In verse 3, we remember the coincidence that the king never honored the man who saved his life. In verse 4, what a coincidence that Haman happens to be coming earlier than he was supposed to, to the court to see the king. And in verses 7 through 9, the coincidence that Haman assumed the king was speaking of him and describes the honor that he thought that he deserved and desired from the king. What a coincidence. And, and these, on top of all of the things we've seen so far in the book of Esther, just coincidences, Right? Karen Jobes contends this reinforces the message that no one in the story, not even the most powerful person in the empire, is in control of what is about to happen. 
An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. She goes on to say, in spite of having all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, Haman's carefully laid plans were turned against him simply because the king had a sleepless night. Isn't it wonderful and interesting that while Esther and Mordecai, the supposed heroes of this story, while they were sleeping, God was not. And He made sure He was not the only one awake. Job's notes elsewhere, our God is so great, so powerful, that He can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish His eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night, because a man would not bow to his superior, because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord. This is what we mean when we talk about God's providence. He reigns. He reigns and is working for the good of His children. He reigns over the mundane things in life. He's working for the good of His children, of all He has committed His loving faithfulness to. A consideration for us as we see this chapter and consider the greatness of God here is pride again. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, but he, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 18 verse 27, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Romans 12, verse 10, we're called to love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. In these, in these three passages, and there are many, many more in the Scriptures, we can clearly see we want to be people who are identified with humility, not pride. God loves humility. God grants humility. One way to see where you land in this is to consider Haman. Consider him going to the court that night early. And just imagine this, right, in the story. His wife, his friends suggest, build, build a gallows that all can see. And then in the morning, go and and have the king allow you to kill Mordecai and hang him on that stake. And he is so zealous to get this done. He goes early. And he, he builds the thing in his yard and then goes early because he's so zealous to see this happen. He's so zealous for his own honor and therefore the destruction of Mordecai, the one who refused to honor him. 
He's clearly zealous to accomplish this for his own honor. It is the picture of pride. And so I would ask you, what are you genuinely zealous for? Sincerely, what is it that you move most quickly to accomplish? What moves you most often and in what direction? Toward toward things that bring honor to you or things that bring honor to God? What are you truly zealous for? Those are things we want to consider as we think about the gospel implications in this text. And so where do we see the gospel in Esther chapter 6? As incredible as this great reversal in Esther is, the reversal of, of Mordecai and Haman, Mordecai going from mourning to splendor and Haman going from splendor to mourning, there is, there is one far greater and far more significant. Christ died, literally. He was dishonored through suffering, through flogging, through mocking, and ultimately through crucifixion. He was hanged on a stake, on a wooden cross. Just as Haman desired to humiliate Mordecai. And you consider the story of that with Jesus and how Satan no doubt was convinced that he had done something great and taken out the Messiah that he had won. However, all of his schemes, all of Satan's schemes were simply accomplishing God's providential plan to save a people, to deliver a people for his own name's sake. Haman thought that he had overcome Mordecai and delighted in it and was humiliated. But far greater, Satan thought that he had overcome Christ. And he was raised from the dead gloriously. We're going to move on to a time where we take the Lord's Supper. And and as we do that, considering that reversal, the cross and resurrection, we experience now the reversal of Mordecai. Those of us who come to Christ, no matter our past, no matter the edict that has been declared against us because of sin, Christ reverses it magnificently through the cross. We go now from mourning to splendor because Christ willingly went from splendor to mourning on our behalf. And so, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to take the bread and the cup, remembering His sacrifice today, commend to each of us the words of Paul again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this truth. Thank you for the truth that although Christ is the one who, who should have been honored above all things for all time and in all ways, He willingly endured humiliation and suffering so that our story could be like Mordecai's story. That we could go from humility humiliation even to splendor because of Christ and the willingness of Him going to the cross. Pray for your help in believing that, Lord. I'm certain that here there are people who struggle to believe it. Would you, would you grant faith to us Maybe some of us even now would pray as the Father in Mark chapter 9. We do believe. Help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to believe. And even now as we prepare to come and receive the bread and receive the cup, Lord, I pray for those who are not yet ready to proclaim that you died and were raised. I pray that in this time they wouldn't they wouldn't just come and receive bread and juice, Lord, but rather they would ponder who you are, what you have done, Lord, the ways you demonstrate your grace in everyday life, the gifts, the kindness, the mercy that you show to us. I pray that you would help, that they would cling to you in faith, believing in you alone for salvation. And for all of us, I pray that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, Lord, that our minds truly would consider Christ, the example of Christ, and that we would have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, and that we would truly be people who are humble and count others as more significant than ourselves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.